regard to the facts in 2020. Instead, we're going to be talking about, maybe we'll call this the, uh, what did the founders say about impeachment, or what did impeachment mean in 1787 when the Constitution was written? So that is the purpose of today's show, and uh, I'm going to point out to you that um, we could probably stretch this over into two shows, and the last time we were on, we were discussing freedom of religion, so I think it's important enough to give all this background about impeachment to put the religion discussion, because we were talking about the history of religion and the, the, the various uh, treaties and the various constitutional provisions, so we'll put that on hold. We'll come back to that in maybe three weeks or so, because today we're going to jump right into impeachment, and I will point out to you, and I'm not saying this in a bad way, but the Democrats and the Republicans, meaning the House managers who have argued for three days, and now we're hearing from the defense team, this is the president's lawyers, both are equally guilty, and again, I'm not saying that this is bad, but they're both guilty of making lots of citations to Alexander Hamilton. That are not uh, out of context. Well, that's what we're going to talk about tonight, because, uh, you know, this gets into the point about why would the lawyers 200 years later be citing to the founding fathers and the founding generation or the framers. And uh, what I've done is I've gone through it. I haven't finished it yet. This will eventually be posted on the website, statutesandstories.com. And this is where I like to point out to people that there are lots of opportunities to delve into this material. You can listen to us on the podcast on the WSQF website, which is the Statutes and Stories section of the website. Or, and in addition, you can go to the website statutesandstories.com where we write this all up and we give all kinds of primary sources. So what do I mean by primary sources? So the debates at the, at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia and the letters back and forth between the founding fathers. So there's all kinds of materials that we, we delve into on that website, which is what I do in my free time. And, uh, and here I think this is useful because this gives us the context about impeachment. There are only a handful, if you don't, if you don't count the impeachments of judges, there's only two cases, and this is the third, where the Senate has actually heard an impeachment trial, and no one has been convicted before the Senate. So we're not going to talk about prior impeachments. We're going to talk about what did the founders mean, and uh, at the end of the hour, I'm going to walk us through, and this will probably continue into a, into a second week, the actual brief. So the president's brief and the brief which was submitted by the House managers, has lots of citations to the, the various arguments that the founders were making when trying to figure out what does impeachment mean, what were they intending. So uh, long story short, we're going to go through the actual briefs, which are available online, the legal briefs, the trial briefs. And before I go into the briefs, the news has also had a lot of discussion about some of the quotes, uh, particularly Hamilton, because uh, I'm going to demonstrate to you tonight that of all the founders that are quoted by both sides, Hamilton is the one that both the president's team has quoted and the Democrats have quoted. The most. So walk, go ahead. Yeah, the most. The most. So that it's clear, and I'm going to substantiate that. I'm going to give you numbers on how many times different founders got quoted, because I did the math. And I'm also going to read to you now... Um, the, 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 the first draft, if you will. I haven't posted it online, but I'm going to read to you uh, from the pending post. So you'll tell me if at the end of the hour if you think yeah, we need to tweak it a little bit. So let me jump right into it. And let me also tell you real quick what are the things we're going to cover, the context for these quotes to the founding fathers, so the background, so it makes sense when you hear it and the arguments on TV and the arguments uh, in the Senate. And we're going to start hearing the questions. I think that's not tomorrow, but the following day where the senators get to submit written questions. The second thing we're going to do is I've got my own quotes to Alexander Hamilton that have not been quoted as far as I know, which I think are also useful. So you'll get to hear some not original quotes of mine, but uh, you know quotes from Hamilton that I think also bear into this conversation. Uh, the third thing we're going to talk about is this quote from 1792 that got a lot of attention in the media the last couple of days. And this is how 
this is let's see, his name is Representative Adam Schiff, has quoted and not just Schiff but also Nadler quoted a, a Hamilton letter that he wrote in 1792, and I want to give people context with that 1792 letter to Washington. Then we'll go for the briefs, and then if we have time, continuing into next week, we will talk about the convention. And I have the actual transcript, if you will, the, the notes by Madison and some others of the debates in 1787, and we'll walk through a quoting from those debates. So let's start with with uh, the article that's being written for Statutes and Stories, and uh, hopefully I won't bore you with the reading it, but we'll, we'll talk about it also. No, it's so. it's it, hey, it's, it's apropos for the moment, you know. It's uh, the the cases are being made, so I think America should uh, hear your perspective. Absolutely. Here we go. And again, I'm not talking about my perspective today. I'm trying to give a, a neutral analysis of, of, of some of the history so it all makes sense for people when they listen to both sides. So here's the, the pending article on statutes and stories, the first time we've read directly from statutes and stories. So the framers of the Constitution and, of course, the Federalist Papers figure prominently in the impeachment trial of President Donald J. Trump. Given the lack of precedence for presidential impeachment in America, and as we said, there have only been two trials before the Senate of a president, so given the lack of precedence, the intent of the founders is certainly relevant to both the prosecution and the defense. And as I'm going to point out, both sides, the president and the, the House managers, are citing to these founders. The phrase, quote, high crimes and misdemeanors, is not defined in Section 4 of Article 2 of the Constitution. It is thus only natural to look at the notes of the Constitutional Convention in 1787, along with the state ratification debates and the Federalist Papers. Let me talk about the state ratification debates real quickly, so here I'm not reading. So each of the states had to decide for themselves that they want to ratify, and there's good primary material when you delve into these recordings, not audio recordings, but the notes of these <laughs> these debates, particularly the Virginia debate, the New York debate, that gives us a lot of information about what the founders were thinking, because they debated it and had to convince the delegates to vote for the Constitution, and it was no guarantee that it was going to get ratified. So it is common for judges and lawyers to cite to these primary sources, these debates, and the notes from the Constitutional Convention. The other thing that is very common to look at are the Federalist Papers. So when we say Federalist Papers, what do we mean? And uh, I'll point out to you that the Federalist Papers are widely regarded as providing some of the best evidence of the Founding Fathers' intent. And the Founding Fathers, uh, here I'm talking about in particular Madison, Hamilton, and John Jay. These were the three who wrote the Federalist Papers. They were written between, let me get back to reading, but they were written between 1787 and 1778. So let's give an overview of the Senate trial briefs. And at least nine members of the founding generation are cited in the trial briefs submitted by the House managers and the president's lawyers. Not surprisingly, citations to my man, Alexander Hamilton, and James Madison outpace the other founders. In particular, Madison, George Mason, and Grubner Morris. And we've talked about Mason. Uh, we spent uh, several nights talking about how Ma Mason was a anti-federalist, if you will, who did not want to have a strong federal government. And Grubner Morris, on the other hand, uh, was a very strong federalist. He was one of the folks who uh, he wound up becoming an ambassador to France. And some of the discussions about executive privilege related to Governor Morris's correspondence uh, back to Washington. So they also figure prominently in the, in the brief submitted by both parties to the Senate. So they play central roles in the drafting of the phrase, treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. So we're going to be looking at Madison, Mason, Morris, and some of the other founders. The House manager's trial brief, so this is the Democrats' brief. The House manager's trial brief cites to Hamilton nine times. The president's trial brief cites to Hamilton 24 times. 
even though Hamilton did not draft the impeachment clause, and here we mentioned Mason and Morris and Madison played a bigger role in drafting this particular clause, there is bipartisan agreement, because Democrats nine times, presidents briefed 24 times, so both sets of briefs, quote, both sets of briefs, uh, let's see, agree that Hamilton's opinions bear on this subject. So some might find it surprising that Hamilton was cited more time by the president's team than by the House Democrats. With that said, the president's legal brief is substantially longer. His brief comes in at 109 pages, and I'm not counting the appendices attached to the president's brief, compared to the House Democrats' brief, which is only 61 pages. So the House brief is about half the size, a little bit less than half the size of the president's brief. Uh, but this is a lot of material, and we're going to try to make sense of some of it. So in addition to the multiple citations to Hamilton, who was cited a combined total of 33 times, and Madison cited 21 times in the two briefs, the House and the, the House brief and the President's brief, the Federalist Papers are cited, you know, cited multiple times, and eight additional founders make appearances in the trial briefs, including George Mason, who we mentioned, Grubner Morris, Edmund Randolph, we'll talk about Edmund Randolph, James Iredell, and we've not talked about James Iredell on other nights, but he eventually becomes a Supreme Court Justice. Of course, George Washington is also cited in the briefs. Ben Franklin is cited in the briefs. Jefferson has just a handful of cites, and Adams, John Adams, who became the first vice president, are also cited in the briefs. So there is a lot of history. When we go through this exercise, Manny, pretty much every Monday, we're not just talking about theoretical history. We're talking about history which is coming to life now and which is cited, again, by the parties in this, in this trial, which is a very historic trial, uh, just regardless of what position you take. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's 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 quite a uh, it's quite a warning shot that the founders and you tell me if we're going to be uh, this could be proven tonight that uh, probably the the biggest concern is that the impeachment is not misused and that it would be bipartisan not partisan. That is, you'll see that when we get into the transcripts, that, that uh, let's call it impeachment for what it was, was intended to be very rare. They didn't anticipate it would be used all that often. And we'll get into some of the debate so you can see how the language was structured and, and where it came from. So let me get back on the script here with regard to this pending article that we'll post hopefully in the next day or two on Statutes and Stories. So I titled this subsection, Hamilton in the Spotlight. So Alexander Hamilton and James Madison were the principal drafters of the Federalist Papers, which were 85 essays written, as I said, between October of 1787 and August of 1788, so less than a year, and they were written to help convince, quote, the people of New York to ratify the U.S. Constitution. The Federalist Papers were anonymously written under the pseudonym Publius, and I have trouble pronouncing it, but Publius, uh, so that was the, when we say pseudonym, the fake name, or they, they wouldn't use their name often when they would write. They're trying to disguise their identity for various reasons. Well, I, I would say the British wanted their heads. <laughs> so, so that's true that during the revolutionary period, but now, which is 1787, 1788, you know, they, they wanted to keep their identity secret. Not that the British were going to care, because the British already had lost. Country, but uh, just so, and we, we could really debate and get into why they wrote this. But it was very common. They, they didn't, but they wrote, I think it came from more, uh, you know, they could write more freely and, uh, you know, it wouldn't taint the, the, the objectives or the, the readers, um, you know, if, if you didn't know who was writing it. And then we could debate about it at a future time, whether or not that maybe it might be useful to reuse that practice, but uh, there remains to be seen. So let me pick up with uh, this pending transcript of the, the pending um, you know, article that we're working on. So it was a closely guarded secret, Publius, Publius's identity, which did not become public until Hamilton's death in 1804. 
So today, scholars agree that Hamilton wrote 51 of the Federalist essays, Madison wrote 29, and John Jay, who became ill, only wrote five, and John Jay later became the chief justice, the first chief justice, and he was an expert on diplomacy because he had done and negotiated a lot of the treaties that we talked about in earlier nights. So the Federalist Papers, written by these three founding fathers who played all of them very important roles in American history, because they are so detailed and because they go methodically through the Constitution, it's understood by historians, judges, and lawyers that they give a really good insight into what the Constitution meant because they're explaining it. Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, who had their feet on the ground and were involved in drafting the Constitution. And we've talked about on prior nights how the Federalist Papers were widely recognized by Washington and others as, you know, this, uh, you know, one of the best exercises in, in democratic government that they really put thought into. And, um, you know, others around the world have cited the Federalist Papers, uh, commonly cited in court decisions. So, picking up with the article. So before delving into the arguments made by the Senate and made to the Senate, I should say, it's useful, in my opinion, to start with the very first Federalist essay. Although it was not cited, to my knowledge, by the litigants in the Trump Senate trial, Federalist Number 1, and they're, they're numbered, the Federalist Number 1 provides, quote, a general introduction, end quote, for the, quote, series of papers that followed in the 84 subsequent Federalist essay. So this is me, Adam Levinson, saying, hey, let's look at Federalist Number 1 to give us some context. And as far as I can tell in the briefs, maybe in the arguments, which I haven't been able to listen to in great detail yet, maybe they will talk about Federalist Number 1. But I think it makes sense to look at what Federalist Number 1 starts by saying, because it's the introduction to the remaining Federalist papers, the remaining 84 essays written over the course of uh, almost a year. So in this introductory essay, and some are written by Madison, some by Jay, but this was written by Hamilton, Federalist Number 1. Hamilton observes, quote, that wise and good people can disagree even on questions of, quote, the first magnitude to society. So Hamilton is saying, and he's writing to convince people that, uh, you know, this is, again, his language, that even wise and good people, because they were debating the Constitution, should we adopt it or not, even wise and good people can disagree even on questions of the first magnitude to society. In other words, on the most important issues of the day, wise and good people can disagree. So this fact, Hamilton argued, should, quote, furnish a lesson in moderation to us all. So this is Hamilton. The fact that people can disagree is a lesson in moderation. That's how Hamilton starts the Federalist Papers. Citing Hamilton, Justice, and I should say Justice, this is the U.S. Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch, who is uh, the second most recent appointment to the U.S. To, I think he's the second most recent. But Neil Gorsuch uh, makes, yeah, he's the second most recent appointment by President Trump. He was Trump's first appointment. He makes this exact point in his recent book, A Republic, If You Can Keep It. So late last year, uh, the, the Justice Gorsuch comes out with a book which is called A Republic, If You Can Keep It, and he cites the Federalist Number 1. The title of ju Judge or Justice Gorsuch's book is taken from a famous quote attributed to Benjamin Franklin at the close of the Constitutional Convention. So the Constitutional Convention, you had approximately there were around 37 that signed if memory serves, and when they finally finished it, uh, there's this famous story which I'm going to recount real quickly, and this is described in uh, Justice Gorsuch's book, his recent book. So here we go. So the famous quote is attributed to Benjamin Franklin at the close of the Constitutional Convention. As anxious Americans waited on the steps of Independence Hall, Franklin was asked, what do we have, a republic or a monarchy? So again, as Franklin is leaving the, the Independence Hall, they didn't call it Independence Hall back then, but as he's leaving, they've, you know, they've finished and this was done in secret. No one got to know as they were debating and drafting it. People were asking Franklin, who at the time was pretty old and he was you know, a wise leader. A lot of people had respect for Franklin as one of the most famous Americans. So he's asked, what do we have, a republic or a monarchy? 
And according to the oft-repeated anecdote, Franklin replied, quote, a Republican, you can keep it. Our responsibility is to keep it. So that's Franklin's famous quote, and this is now the, the subject of the book that uh, Justice Gorsuch just recently wrote last year. So, in Federalist Number 1, Hamilton explained the importance of ratifying the proposed Constitution, and according to Hamilton in Federalist Number 1, the consequences, you know, why are we writing these, all, all these articles? Why, why do we need to have a Constitution? So he answers, the consequences were, quote, nothing less than the existence of the Union, and he puts that all in in caps, the existence of the Union, all capital letters, the safety and welfare of the parts of which it is composed, the fate of the empire, in many respects, the most interesting in the world. So this is why Hamilton is writing the Federalist Papers, why we need the Constitution. So he's justifying why this is so important. And in a famous passage in this first Federalist essay, Federalist Number 1, Hamilton asked the following question. I won't read all of it, but I'm going to give you some of what he asks in Federalist Number 1, which to my knowledge has not been cited by either party. This is Hamilton in Federalist Number 1. It has been frequently remarked that it seems to have been reserved to the people of this country by their conduct and example to decide the important question whether societies of men are really capable of not establishing good government from reflection and choice or whether they are forever destined to depend on their political constitutions on accident and force. So I won't go into detail with, with what Hamilton's writing here, but basically he's saying we have an opportunity now. We have a historic opportunity to do things right, to decide whether society gets to make its own government on reflection and choice or whether or not you're destined to inherit uh, you know, a government that's given to you by force and accident. We want to get this right. That's what Hamilton is saying when they write when he writes Federalist Number 1. So as one of the most vocal proponents of the Constitution and as a pivotal figure in President Washington's first cabinet, Hamilton provides fertile material for historians, lawyers, and judges to survey the founders' thinking. That also helps that Hamilton was arguably the most prolific writer and pamphleteer of his day. So that's a little bit of an introduction I'm trying to give about the Federalist Papers, which are repeatedly cited in these briefs. The next section of the post that we're working on, the title of the section here, the subsection is Riding the Storm and Directing the Whirlwind. So what do I mean, Riding the Storm and Directing the Whirlwind? And this is the controversial quote, uh, and we'll get into some of the details uh, that's made a lot of attention in the news. People have criticized it, and I want everyone to have the context of what are they talking about. So the above passages from Federalist Number 1, which I just discussed above, were not cited by the Senate's trial briefs, or the briefs to the Senate. Representative Adam B. Schiff from California, his opening statement began by quoting a letter written by Hamilton to Washington in 1792, which is several years after the Constitution was written. So when Representative Schiff, who was the lead manager on the Democratic side who come up, came over from the House, when he began his opening statement, so here I'm not quoting from the brief, I'm quoting from the transcript, which you can get online, of the arguments that the different proponents, the prosecution, if you will, and the defense have argued. So I'm going to start by quoting from Schiff. And in a dramatic warning to Washington, Alexander Hamilton discussed, and this is quoted by Schiff, Alexander Hamilton discussed the unlikely but nonetheless possible danger, quote, of popular demagogues, unquote, subverting the Constitution to pursue their personal gain. So as you're going to see, Adam Schiff repeatedly mentions this letter that Hamilton wrote to Washington. And in this letter, which was marked private and con confidential, 
and it was part of a, a string of, of correspondence between Washington and Hamilton. So this series of letters began with a letter, uh, which was marked private and confidential, that Washington wrote to Hamilton. This is in July, I believe, of 1792. And Washington asked Hamilton to address 21 criticisms that Washington had heard while he was traveling the country toward the end of his first term. So what's the background? Uh, things were going relatively well. They put in place a bunch of programs, and things are, are working, and the economy, there's, there were some glitches, but the economy was working pretty smoothly. So uh, things are moving ahead, I think exceeding a lot of expectations. And Washington goes on this trip to get input from around the country. And uh, while he's uh, riding around the country, he goes back to Virginia. Uh, there are people who get his ear, and there are some that are friendly to his administration. There are some that are hostile to the administration. So while Washington does not identify Jefferson by name in this letter that he writes to Hamilton, where he lists 21 criticisms of his administration, where he's trying to get the input of the populace, and Jefferson is giving him all these criticisms. So he doesn't identify in the letter Jefferson by name. Historian Ron Chernow, who wrote uh, several biographies of Hamilton and Washington, so Ron Chernow suggests that Hamilton would clearly have known the source of these grievances that Washington listed in the letter he wrote to Hamilton. Among the list of complaints, Washington wrote to Hamilton that his critics were alleging that the real intent of Hamilton's policies was to replace the new constitution with monarchy based upon the British model. So of these 21 very detailed criticisms that Washington's laying out for Hamilton to analyze, it's actually number 14 if you look at the letter, and we're going to put links so people can read these letters themselves. So the, the 14th criticism that Washington asked Hamilton to respond to uh, discusses this issue about whether or not Hamilton is really secretly trying to you know, subvert the democracy and turn it into a monarchy, presumably with Hamilton to become the king. So that's the concern. That was the, the rumors that some people in Virginia and otherwise were, and that Jefferson was sort of beating that drum. So in a passage quoted by Representative Schiff, Hamilton rejects any suggestion that there was a plot by Hamilton or anyone else in the administration to reinstitute a monarchy or aristocracy. Of course, a monarchy is a single leader. Aristocracy is uh, several wealthy individuals, usually landowners, controlling the government. So Hamilton out, outright rejects this, this uh, fanciful notion that they were trying to recreate a monarchy. Hamilton, in his exhaustive 14,000-page 14, 14, letter, so Washington writes to Hamilton, he lists these 21 issues that he wants Hamilton to respond to, and uh, Hamilton responds in a 14,000-page letter entitled, and this is the name of the letter if you want to Google it, but we're going to put it online, Objections and Answers Respecting the Administration. And this is what, again, Representative Schiff is quoting from, Objections and Answers Respecting the Administration. And in this 14,000-page letter, Hamilton explains the circumstances which theoretically could present a threat to our democracy, where you could have a monarchy be created or you could have uh, you know, the, the, the democracy fall apart. And this is what the House Democrats are citing, but I want to give the context so everybody understands the criticisms and the reasons uh, to cite this letter from 1792 and pay attention to that date. So here's what the letter, and it's 14,000 pages, and I'm just going to read a paragraph of it. A letter was 14,000 pages. Did you just say that? 14,000 pages. So Washington writes to Hamilton 21 arguments that he wants 
Hamilton to respond to. And these were things that Washington was hearing primarily from Jefferson when he went back to Washington uh, from, from the, remember, at the time the capital was Philadelphia. Yes. So when Washington goes from Philadelphia back to Virginia, he's getting input, and he has all these criticisms. And he, I think Washington's also deciding, does he want to run again? And it's towards the end of his term, so he's hearing all these criticisms, and Washington had thick skin, but he doesn't like being criticized. So he wants Hamilton to answer all these critiques. So Hamilton spends 14,000 letters, or you know, words, rather, to respond. And this is one of the paragraphs, and it's responding to criticism number 14. So this is, this is what was cited by the House Democrats, by Adam Schiff, when he began. This is the analogy that Schiff made. So he, he reads from this letter. So let me read this same paragraph, and we'll talk about it. So this is, again, Hamilton responding to Washington, quote, When a man unprincipled in private life, desperate in his fortune, bold in his temper, possessed of considerable talents, having the advantage of military habits, despotic in his ordinary demeanor, known to have scoffed in private at the principles of liberty, when such a man is seen to mount the hobby horse of popularity, to join in the cry of danger to liberty, to take every opportunity of embarrassing the general government and bringing it under suspicion, to flatter and fall in with all the nonsense of the zealots of the day, it may justly be suspected that his object is to throw things into confusion, that he may, quote, ride the storm and direct the whirlwind. So this paragraph was cited again by Adam Schiff at the beginning of his argument, was also mentioned on day two by Representative Nadler from New York. Let me continue reading from the pending post. To be sure, Hamilton did not think that this scenario was likely. And what is that scenario? Where someone basically is a demagogue, right, is whipping up all kinds of controversies to ride the storm and take over because of all the, the whirlwind, as he describes it, um, to gain the hobby horse of popularity and replace the government. That's basically what the scenario he's describing. So in my opinion, to be sure, Hamilton did not think that this scenario was likely, but he did identify, quote, the past whereby a demagogue could subvert our Republican form of government. And here I'm quoting again from this 14,000-page letter by Hamilton. So Hamilton continues. He says, The truth unquestionably is that the only path to a subversion of the Republican system of the country is, quote, again, continuing to read, by flattering the prejudices of the people and exciting their jealousies and apprehensions. And I'll point out to you that the Democrats might say that this is what Trump is doing, and the Republicans might say that this is what the Democrats are doing. Right? So Hamilton is saying the dangerous path, the way that someone could subvert the country, is by flattering the prejudices of the people, exciting their jealousies and apprehensions, to throw affairs into confusion and bring on civil commotion. I, I vote that that's what the Democrats are doing. <laughs> so, tired, I'm almost done reading it, tired at length of anarchy or want of government, they may take shelter in the arms of monarchy for repose and security. So this is the letter that was cited repeatedly by the Democrats, and then this was criticized on, you know, on uh, Fox News, for example, uh, that it's unfair to look at this letter from 1792, and we'll, we'll talk about that. So in his opening statement, Representative Schiff argued that President Trump has, quote, acted precisely as Hamilton and his contemporaries have feared. Of course, President Trump's attorney, Jay Sekulow, promptly rejected this comparison in a press conference. So this is the Democrats had three days, and then at night the Republicans would respond to and, and try to dispute the arguments that the Democrats were making. So that was what Chase Seculo did on TV during a press conference, saying that this is not an accurate comparison. Why are you looking at this letter from 1792 when the Constitution was written in 1787? So this is several years later. So Seculo uh, argues that the famous Hamilton quote was, quote, inapplicable and completely out of place 
since it wasn't about impeachment and was primarily about policy disputes five years after the Constitution was adopted. Quote, this is, of course, Jay Sekulow, I'm quoting. They're not only taking the wrong law, they're taking the wrong quotes from the Founding Fathers. It would be really, and I'm skipping ahead, it would be really appropriate if they cited the right provisions and what the Founders were actually talking about, Sekulow asserted. So, you know, this gets into this issue. What's the proper context? And we'll go into more detail about the specific quotes on impeachment. But I think it's useful to understand, because it was, it was such a big topic of discussion for the first two days, what was the purpose of, of, this, of this paragraph and what does it really mean? I'm continuing reading from the pending article that we're working on. House manager Gerald Nadler or Nadler, went even further to imply and implicitly connect Hamilton's warning to President Trump. According to Representative Nadler, Hamilton's 1792 letter was, quote, an especially striking portrait. For Nadler, quote, Hamilton was a wise man. He foresaw, he foresaw dangers far ahead of his time. And I would agree, Hamilton was a, uh, you know, a very wise person. But what did he mean by this discussion? Uh, and I don't know that we have an answer, but we can debate about it. And I'll point out to you that conservative columnist William Crystal, and many, I know you would refer to William Crystal as an ever-Trumper, but in the piece for the now-defunct Weekly Standard, had quoted that same Hamilton letter from 1792 in a January 2018 article entitled, Did Alexander Hamilton Predict the Rise of Donald Trump? So it wasn't the Democrats who were the first to cite that letter. It was Bill Crystal in this uh, article in January of, of 2018. So what's my point? It's safe to conclude that the Hamilton quote does not directly support the Democratic argument for impeachment because, you know, here, William Crystal was also citing to it two years ago. So the quote was not written in the context of impeachment. We should all understand that. And Hamilton's musings were addressed only to Washington. He was not writing for others. He was writing in response to a confidential letter that Washington had written to him. Nevertheless, at the time of this writing, so as we say this today, it will be for the Senate to decide what was the purpose of that warning and uh, whether the letter, uh, what was it warning against. So the following discussion I'm now going to engage with you. That's the, the current state of uh, what we have written. I want to now go into the actual briefs. And it makes sense, in my opinion, to be methodical. I'm going to start with the House manager's brief, and you can jump in if you want to say something's out of context. And then we'll go on to the president's brief and how we're doing on time. And the quick answer is we've got about 15 minutes, so there's no way we're going to get through it all. But I'm just going to read you from the quotations to the right from the brief, and uh, we, we can talk about them. No problem. Right. I, I'm dying. Remember, this is the Democratic brief, and we're going to go through the Republican brief or the president's brief once we get through this brief. So one of the founding, and here I'm quoting, one of the founding generation's principal fears was that foreign governments would seek to manipulate American elections, the defining feature of our self-government. So here they're going to cite from Jefferson and Adams. So Thomas Jefferson and John Adams warned, quote, of foreign interference, intrigue, and influence, and they predicted, as often as elections happen, the danger of foreign influence reoccurs. So Jefferson and Adams were worried, and when they talk about foreign influence, they're worried about Britain and they're worried about France and other countries, and that's a letter that Adams writes to Jefferson in December of 1787. So if we want to talk about uh, what founding fathers do we want to cite from, I would point out that neither Adams nor Jefferson were at the Constitutional Convention. One of them was the ambassador to France. One of them was an ambassador, I believe, to England at the time. So, you know, what, what does Adams and, and Jefferson bring to bear? And the answer is they've got a perspective, but they weren't bullet, you know, uh, boots on the ground in Philadelphia. So they're, they're writing, you know, from their vantage point in Europe, and that's why they were worried about foreign influence, because they probably saw how the European powers would, would meddle. So here's another site in the briefs. This is, again, the Democratic briefs. 
fresh from their experience under British rule by a king, the framers were concerned that corruption posed a grave threat to their new republic. As George Mason, and he's a founding father we talked about before, from Virginia, very wealthy, and Mason was one of the anti-federalists. So George Mason warned the other delegates to the Constitutional Convention, quote, if we do not provide against corruption, our government will soon be at an end. So this is the Democrats citing from George Mason, and that comes from the records of the Constitutional Convention, and there are different um, you know, drafts of it, but this is the Max Ferrand uh, version from 1911, and he put together this transcript of, of the Constitutional Convention, quoting from Madison primarily. So continuing from the brief, the framers stressed that a president, quote, who acts from some corrupt motive or other, or, quote, willfully abuses his trust, must be impeached because the president, quote, will have great opportunity for abusing power. Again, this is from the Democratic brief, and that's coming from, again, the, the debates of the floor of the Constitutional Convention. Let me skip ahead. As I keep emphasizing, this is from the Democratic trial brief. The framers specifically feared a president who abused his office by sparing, quote, no efforts or means whatsoever to get himself reelected. In other words, they were worried, and this is also citing from the floor debates, that a, that a president could use his office, uh, and the way they wrote it was that he would use no efforts or means whatsoever to get himself reelected, that he'd abuse the office. Uh, and then Mason asked at the Constitutional Convention, quote, so the man who has practiced corruption, and by that means procured his appointment in the first instance, be suffered to escape punishment by repeating his guilt. And this is the language that they used back then. But Mason is basically asking the question, you know, if the president, and I'm not taking a position, I'm just citing from the... Ah, oh, come on. So, so Mason is pointing out that should the person who procured his appointment in the first instance be allowed to escape punishment by repeating his guilt, thus, from the Democratic brief, the framers resolved to hold the president, quote, impeachable whilst in office as an essential security for the good behavior of the executive. So these are the citations that the Democrats are making. Uh, let me uh, come back to – let me skip ahead a little bit. So farewell, farewell address. Who writes the farewell address? It's written by Washington and by Hamilton. They teamed up to write it, and we talked about that. We did it. An entire hour, at least an hour, talking about the farewell address. I know the Democrats in their brief cite from the farewell address, and here I'm quoting, President George Washington warned Americans, quote, to be constantly awake since history and experience prove that foreign influence is one of the most baneful foes of Republican government. Alexander Hamilton cautioned that, quote, most deadly adversaries of Republican government, quote, may come chiefly from the desire in foreign powers to gain an improper ascendant in our councils. So these are warnings that you see discussed in the in the uh, debates, and that's going to be coming from Federalist Number 68, where, where Hamilton talks about uh, the dangers of foreign adversaries. James Madison worried that a future president could betray his trust to foreign powers, which might be fatal to the republic, and that was at the debates that took place in Philadelphia. So Madison was worrying that a president could betray his trust to foreign powers, which might be fatal to the republic. And again, citing from the Democratic brief, and we'll do the Republican brief once we get through the Democratic brief, of particular relevance now in their personal correspondence about foreign interference, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams discussed their apprehension as often as elections happen, the danger of foreign influence recurs. So at least Jefferson and Adams were concerned about foreign influence in elections. The framers adopted a standard, according to the Democrats, flexible enough to reach the full range of potential presidential misconduct. So Democrats are going to argue, and I won't wait 
weighed in, and they do argue that uh, the, the standard, which is flexible in their mind, covers treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors, and really that's the key. What does other high crimes and misdemeanors mean? Democrats think it's flexible and it can include any kind of offense that involves public trust, the breach of public trust, whereas, of course, the Republicans' argument, and I did not get to hear it today from uh, from uh, uh, Dershowitz, but I'm pretty sure his argument was that— Yeah, he's on right like, now. Okay, so I'm pretty sure that Dershowitz was arguing or will be arguing that a high crime or misdemeanor has to be a criminal offense. It's not enough for it to be a constitutional crime. It has to be a specified crime, and I look forward to hearing Dershowitz's argument. Skipping ahead, the decision to denote treason or bribery as impeachable reflects the founding-era concerns over foreign influence, but according to the Democrats, the framers also recognized that many great and dangerous offenses, that's a quote, many great and dangerous offenses could warrant impeachment and immediate removal of president from office. And that's coming directly from the debates at uh, Philadelphia. These, quote, other high crimes and misdemeanors provided for the Constitution, provided by the Constitution, need not be indictable criminal offenses, the Democrats argue. Rather, as Hamilton explained, impeachable offenses involve, quote, abuse or violation of some public trust and are, quote, of a nature which may with peculiar propriety be denominated political as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to the society itself. And by the way, this is coming from Federalist 65. This, I think, has been cited more than any of the other Federalist papers. I read earlier from Federalist 68, but Federalist 65, that paragraph that I just read, which is one of the big supports that the Democrats point to, that the abuse or violation of public trust, a nature which may with peculiar propriety be denominated political, and it goes on, so that they're pointing to that, the Democrats, to say it doesn't have to be a specified enumerated criminal offense as long as it's a violation of public trust. That's 65. And when we get to the Republican brief, they, of course, disagree with that interpretation. All right, we're almost done with the Democrats. Um, you'll tell me, Manny, if uh, we have to slow it down or speed it up. And I think we're going to have to continue with the Republican arguments in, in week two. So let me skip ahead. So towards the end of the brief, when it deals with the historical discussion, uh, to the extent President Trump claims, this is the Democratic brief, that he has concealed evidence to protect the office of the president, the framers considered and rejected that defense. Several delegates of the Constitutional Convention warned that impeachment power would, quote, be destructive of the executive's independence. And now they discuss this issue about would, would let's call it what it is, would impeachment weaken the president? And here the Democrats respond that framers adopted an impeachment power anyway, even though it could weaken the president, because, quote, as Alexander Hamilton observed, and this is Alexander Hamilton's quote, the powers relating to impeachments, quote, are an essential check in the hands of Congress upon the encroachments of the executive. And that's Hamilton writing in Federalist Number 66. So the Democrats concede that, yes, impeachment does weaken the president, but according to the Democrats in Federalist Number 6, quoting Hamilton, it's a, the powers relating to impeachment are an essential check in the hands of Congress upon the encroachments of an executive. Yeah, but so, notice when they say Congress, you have to assume two parties in, in the Congress, or if there were 10 parties, but it's the Congress. And when it's partisan, then it's uh, falsified, uh, uh, purposeless or fruitless uh, uh, hurting, uh, hurting of the executive branch, not necessarily the, the, the president who's affected, but all future presidents. When it's a partisan impeachment, it's, it's a complete misuse of the impeachment. If you can't get uh, bipartisan support for something like this, uh, you really undermine the power of the presidency because not allowing him, the president, not just Donald Trump, but you have to allow the president to exert 
executive power through the courts. And therefore, you, you can't accuse him of abuse of power when he's seeking the courts for that remedy. Of course, you might you could say, yeah, he's protecting his butt, but he's also protecting future presidents because presidents are human and they talk with people who are human, which are the people close to them, and they can't possibly have discussions that are completely sterile of themselves. Some of them, some of these conversations are, you know, blunt force trauma truths that may be debated later among them, but in the contents of disclosing them could just be used out of context to build a case and no, no more so than in a partisan, a completely partisan impeachment. And that was probably Hamilton's fear more than anything else. So I, I think you've given a good introduction into the Republican brief, and you'll tell me how much of it we want to go into. But just as I walk through the Democratic brief or the House manager's trial brief, I've now got the president's brief. So let me – and I agree that many of the arguments you just made are, are in the brief. Uh, but I'm going to walk you through the history in the Republican brief, the president's brief. And let me give you some background. The Republicans – when I say Republicans, the president's lawyers cite Hamilton 24 times, cite the Federalist Papers 14 times. Times, and it's the Federalist Papers 48, 49, 51, 65. And here I'm making the point that the same Federalist Paper 65 that the Democrats cite, the Republicans also cite to Federalist Paper 65, and the Republicans also cite to number 68. They cite Madison 20 times. Uh, and Hamilton was 24 times, so the Republicans are citing Madison 20 times, Mason twice, Grubner Morris six times, and James Iredell five times. So it's a it's a who's who of the founding fathers get cited in both briefs. All right, so let's jump into some of the weeds. So this is coming from the Republican brief, the president's brief. So the framers, I'm quoting, foresaw that the House might at times fall prey to tempestuous, or tempestuous partisan tempers. And Manny, you were talking about partisan tempers. Alexander Hamilton recognized that, quote, the persecution of an intemperate or designing majority in the House of Representatives, let me say that again, the persecution of an intemperate or designing majority in the House of Representatives, end quote, was a real danger in impeachments. The Republicans are arguing, and Jefferson acknowledged that impeachment provided, quote, the most formidable weapon for the purposes of dominant faction, and back then they referred to faction meant the political party. So the most formidable weapon for the purposes of a dominant faction that ever was contrived. So the Republicans are citing to Jefferson that be careful about this very formidable weapon that can be used by political factions. That is why the framers entrusted the trial of impeachments to the Senate. So this is, again, the Republican brief. Let me skip ahead. They cite to Justice Story, who was a very important early justice. So I'm not going to read you the Story's argument. They cite to Federalist number 65. Let me skip ahead. So here, here, this is, again, the Republican brief, which is what I'm going to be reading from. All this is the Republican brief. House Democrats claim that the Senate can remove a president from office by running afoul of some ill-defined conception of, quote, abuse of power. And the, the brief argues that this finds no support in the text or history of the impeachment clause. As explained above, by limiting impeachment to cases of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, the framers restricted impeachment to specific offenses against, quote, already known and established law. Thank <laughs> you. 
that was a deliberate choice designed to constrain the power of impeachment. I'm skipping ahead, and now they cite to Matt Madison, and it says, restricting impeachment to offenses established by law provided a crucial protection for the independence of the executive from what James Madison called, quote, impetuous vortex of legislative power. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that before. The impetuous vortex of legislative power. As many constitutional scholars have recognized, quote, the framers were far more concerned, this is your argument, Manny, far, were far more concerned about protecting the presidency from the encroachments of Congress than they were with the potential abuse of executive power. And I'll point out to you, this is a big difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. The Republicans are arguing the framers were very concerned about protecting the presidency from encroachments by Congress, whereas the Democrats are arguing that uh, if the violations are serious enough, Congress needs to do its job. So that's a big difference between the two sides. Let me keep reading from the brief. The impeachment power necessarily implicated that concern. If the power were too expansive, the framers feared that the legislative branch may, quote, hold independent. Let me see that right. Uh, the framers feared that the legislative branch may, quote, hold impeachments as a rod over the executive and by that means effectively destroy his independence. One key voice at the Constitutional Convention, Governor Morris, warned that as they crafted a mechanism to make the president, quote, amenable to justice, the framers, quote, should take care to provide some mode that will not make him dependent on the legislature, end quote. To limit the impeachment power, Morris argued that only, quote, few, quote, offenses ought to be impeachable and the cases ought to be enumerated and defined. So Gruffner Morris, who was a strong Federalist, wanted a very narrow definition, and I'm quoting again from the brief, Morris argued that only a few offenses ought to be impeachable and the cases ought to be enumerated and defined. All right, so we can go into more detail. With Yeah, I, I agree with that, that the, the, it should be very narrow because, uh, you know, there are so many people listening on these calls uh, that's plenty of oversight to begin with, and people who uh, who are on these calls cannot have someone other than themselves uh, write complaints about what happened on the call. I mean, we're talking about the origins, uh, exactly what uh, these founders in these Federalist Papers feared, which is uh, third persons are complaining about something that they were not a witness to. And if they're partisan, as these members are showing to be, they're from the previous administration, the two Vidman brothers and the whistleblower that everybody knows who it is and yet, yet hasn't been proven so, were also from the previous administration. You can see how an open-ended impeachment that isn't enumerated and isn't narrow in scope can undermine the presidency of the United States. That is the argument, and I'm going to wrap it up a little bit, and I wanted to focus, because it's very interesting, the same Federalist paper, Federalist 65, I quoted from it at length in the Democratic brief, now I'm going to quote from the discussion in the Republican brief, the President's brief, so we're going to talk about Federalist 65, and I think then we'll wrap it up to be continued next week, and we'll know more next week about what's actually going to happen. So let me get back to the Republican brief, the President's brief, so they direct Federalist number 65 directly, and remember, Federalist 65 is the Federalist paper that talks about abuse of power. So the Republicans argue, the, the Republican lawyers argue, Alexander Hamilton's description in Federalist 65 does not support the House Democrats' theory of a vague abuse of power offense. In an often cited passage, Hamilton observed that the subject of impeachment are, quote, offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. So the Democrats cite that exact sentence. 
So how do the Republicans and how do the president's lawyers respond? They explain that Federalist number 65 at page 396, Alexander Hamilton, uh, let's see here, here it is. Hamilton was merely noting fundamental characteristics common to impeachable offense. So the Republicans are arguing, although Hamilton says public trust, he's merely describing, here's the brief again, they're merely, Hamilton was merely noting fundamental characteristics common to impeachable offense, offenses, that they must involve or proceed from misconduct in public office or abuse of public trust. He was no more saying, of course Hamilton, Republicans are arguing, he was no more saying that abuse or violation of some public trust provided in itself the definition of a chargeable offense, then he was saying that misconduct of public men provided such a defense. So that's the Republican response that no, just because Hamilton says breach of public trust or uh, public trust does not mean that that by itself alone is the basis to impeach, and there's big disagreement on that issue. Let me skip ahead, uh, and it's interesting that the this is nice if you're a lawyer if you can pull this off, but remember I mentioned on the, when I was talking about the Democrats at the very beginning, that uh, William Crystal, Bill Crystal, uh, had written in January of 2018 an article, and um, we're going to post that article, and we're going to post some other articles too. And I pointed out to you how uh, what was the specific? The argument was that um, I want to get the name correct. So Sapphire. Uh, let me see. Yeah, William Sapphire. Right. So. I can't find it, but we're going to post it. So, again, in 2000, uh, 2018, there was an article, which I think was the first time that that 1792 letter was quoted, and I will find it shortly. Um, let me, I hate to do this on the air because I wanted to cite the specific article. Give me another quick second. Well, the, the state war. Yes, okay. So, William, William Crystal, sorry. So, in William Crystal's article in the Weekly Standard, which doesn't exist anymore, in January 18, the title of his, of his article was Did Alexander Hamilton Predict the Rise of Donald Trump? Now, I want to cite you to an article which was written by Alan Dershowitz. And I'm, I'm smiling that this is uh, some, something that's fun to do if you're a lawyer to cite to your own writings, right? So, this is <laughs> in the president's brief. They cite in one of the footnotes to Alan Dershowitz. So, Dershowitz is citing Dershowitz. So, let me describe to you what Dershowitz is quoted for. So impeachment is not just a political process unconstrained by law. The subject of an impeachment are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of men, in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust, and here they describe, that is political. So what does uh, Dershowitz say? But Hamilton didn't say the process of impeachment is entirely political. He said the offense has to be political. And that's a citation to Alan Dershowitz. And Dershowitz's article was, Hamilton wouldn't impeach Trump. And that's from the Wall Street Journal, October 9th of 2019. So you've got the, the, the president's brief is citing to Dershowitz in an article in the Wall Street Journal, and we're going to try to post that article on Statutes and Stories. And uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up in a second. Let me just finish the paragraph. Hamilton's description of Federalist 65 should not be taken to mean that impeachments have a conventional political nature unmoored from traditional criminal process. So this is the argument that Dershowitz is making, that it's not enough that it be a breach of trust that has to be connected to a to an actual criminal violation, and it will remain to be seen what the Senate has to say. So with that, Manny, I am signing off. We will continue next week, and I'm hoping in the next day or two we can post this article online, and readers, I should say you know, listeners, got to hear it first on Statutes and Stories, and I think you know, once you see it in writing, it'll make a lot more sense. Um, but uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you, my friend, and we live in interesting times. We definitely live in interesting, uh, truthful times because at least both parties claim to be the beholden uh, exclusive right to the truth. And I guess 
the best thing about this is hopefully this will appear in political science classes from here on in. And I don't hold a whole lot of hope for that, but it should be. I mean, these these impeachment hearings should be played over and over again in high schools, not necessarily in college, but in high schools, so that the same conversations you and I are having here tonight on WSQF Blink Radio 94.5 with the statues and stories can happen in school. What do you think? So I'm all in favor of education. It's a reminder people can get a free education by listening to us and going to statutesandstories.com. And I'm going to finally sign off by bringing us back to where we started, which was Federalist Number 1. And what did Hamilton say in Federalist Paper Number 1? He says that, and I'm quoting, in his introduction, he says that wise and good people can disagree even on questions of the first magnitude, even on these weighty, important questions. And Hamilton argues that this should furnish a, les- a lesson in moderation to us all. So even though people will get passionate, uh, you, you, you still can be friends, and I don't want to generalize too much, uh, but people at the end of the day, we're one country, and uh, there will be a solution. And we're on the same team. We're ultimately on the same team. So Stay free, my that- friends. Stay free. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. If you can just get your mind together, then come on across to me.